0: The only announcement we have tonight is that uh, we have a Christmas Eve service this next Tuesday night. That's going to be at 7 p.m. So if you're a live streamer and you turn in at 7.30, you'll be in the middle of the service. So we'll have our Christmas communion service on Tuesday night at at 7 o'clock. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit enjoying our fellowship with god looking to him to supply our every need and provide for us along the way so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer if you need to confess sin and if not then we'll be prepared to study the word this evening let's pray Oh, Father, what a joy it is to come together to study your Word and to reflect upon all that you have provided for us, just to reflect upon the significance of your Word and how it was revealed through the prophets in the Old Testament, through the apostles in the New Testament, and how it was recorded and preserved, protected, all down through the ages, and how what a privilege it is that we have your Word uh, before us. We have it in many many different formats and different translations and and father we can learn and you use this your word in our spiritual life as uh, our lord prayed to you sanctify them in truth thy word is truth it is indispensable and central to our sanctification our spiritual life our spiritual growth father we pray that we might be encouraged challenged as we study this evening and that we may gain greater focus on our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, and we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter, and we're continuing our study in Second Peter 1:8 and following. We've gone over uh, bits and pieces of Second Peter 1:8 already, but we have we're going to put it together tonight and then go on into verse nine and on into verse 10. Now, it's interesting in these verses that they are sometimes mistranslated, mishandled, misappropriated uh, by the uh, lordship uh, theologians who seek to argue that these are verses that support the idea that you need to have good works in order to prove you're actually saved. That's at the essence of, of lordship salvation. So we'll look at some of the ways they... Uh, misuse and abuse this passage as we go through this. But it is a passage that talks about the idea that we are to demonstrate that we have been called and that we have been qualified to be saved. And that qualification comes from imputed righteousness. It's not our works, it's not our fruit that qualifies us. It is the fact that by trusting in Christ as Savior... At that instant, God the Father imputed or credited to us the righteousness of Christ, and it's on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we are justified. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But then when we live that out, it demonstrates that reality to others, and that's important. That's part of what this passage is all about. So just to give us the overview... This is part of the section that goes from uh, 1:5 down through verse 11, and that first part is a list of various attributes or characteristics, qualities, virtues. They're described by a host of different t- terms, but this is the these all describe Christ-like character. And it fits with, as we studied in a few lessons back, it describes the f- the fruit of the Spirit. Some of them are parallel. Some of them are not mentioned in Galatians 5. But these are uh, the qualifications, the characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ's character that are manifested in us as we grow and as we mature. And so we went through that list starting with faith as the foundation, and this is talking about their phase one justification by faith, faith. And so it is that faith that they are delivered from or saved from the eternal penalty of sin, and then to that they add uh, virtue, that is their spiritual excellence. The term that you'll find in a lot of books is moral excellence. The difference is that Non-Christians, unbelievers, can be moral. So we have to distinguish that term in some way. So it's talking about spiritual excellence, that which is produced in us as a result of our walk by the Spirit. And so that's why I took us through Galatians uh, 5.16 and following a few lessons back, to faith, uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual excellence, and to spiritual excellence knowledge, because the Christian life is based on knowledge it's based on information that's not the end goal is to acquire information it is the means to the end which is our spiritual growth and god transforming us into the character of christ the image of christ to knowledge self-control there's self-mastery is the idea there that is not letting the sin nature run away with itself but of course we can only truly master it as we're walking by the Spirit and to self-mastery perseverance that's hanging in there with the Christian life and not reaching a point where we think, okay, I'm happy, I'm satisfied, and I've arrived. We have to hang in there all the way to the end. And not to be saved, but in order to continue to grow and mature and to glorify the Lord, not to demonstrate the uh, the reality of our salvation. That's what the the fifth... P- fifth word in the acronym TULIP. TULIP is describes the five points of Calvinism. The T is for total inability. The U is for unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement. Christ died only for the elect. The I is for irresistible grace, that God the Holy Spirit only works on the elect uh, to bring them to a knowledge of salvation. And the P is perseverance, that God the Holy Spirit, Uh, that the individual believer must persevere, maintain his faith to the end, or uh, he's not really saved. Now, that idea, interestingly enough, is uh, it came out of uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, 4th century, around 390 to 425. In that era is when he is somewhere in there, he is saved. But he comes out of a background where he's been heavily influenced. He's bounced around from one religion to another. And initially, he probably had it right. Evidence shows that he understood that when you get into, I think it's Matthew twenty-four seventeen, somewhere in there, in the Olivet Discourse where it's talking about future, the future tribulation, that initially in his early life, he understood that that was talking not about justification salvation, but about deliverance from all of the, um, all of the uh, plagues and wars and everything that were going on in the tribulation. The verse in question is the one that says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Okay. Now, a lot of times in the New Testament, the word saved doesn't refer to salvation from eternal condemnation. It refers, in many cases, to being saved or delivered from sickness. It also um, means be saved or delivered from certain circumstances, and that's the way it should be understood in matthew twenty four But <clears throat> there was a point when he came under the influence of, uh, of of a teacher that introduced him to an allegorical interpretation and convinced him. That there was no literal future kingdom. He started off premillennial, but he had trouble because the premillennialists of his day had a very, um, uh, you know, had a very fleshly uh, understanding of the millennium. Everybody was going to just eat, drink, and be merry, and it was it was a really distorted concept of the millennium. So he rejected that and. When, well, once you change your eschatology, you come back to Matthew 24, and now you're going to read those who persevere to the end will be saved. No longer is there a literal future tribulation period and a future literal tri- uh, millennium. So now he changed his interpretation to mean that those who persevere to the end will be justified. So he introduced this concept of perseverance which is later picked up by John Calvin. It's picked up first by Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk before he uh, wrote his, his 99 Theses on the church at the door of Wittenberg, starts the Reformation. And John Calvin goes to law school at the Sorbonne at the University of Paris, in Paris, which is an Augustinian school. So they picked up Augustine's theology, and as a result of that, they basically are regurgitating the foundation of Roman Catholic uh, anthropology, Roman Catholic homardiology, and Roman Catholic, uh, to some degree, Roman Catholic soteriology, that you have to have uh, this fruit, this moral change in your life, or you weren't really saved. And that's what perseverance came to, came to mean in uh, Reformed theology. Some people, like Lewis Berry Chafer, sort of re- revised it a little bit and said that it meant to, that Christ would persevere in keeping us. And that's accurate, but that's not the historical uh, meaning of Perseverance. But biblically, the idea of perseverance isn't to show that you're saved. It is to continue to grow and mature despite opposition so that you can glorify God to the maximum. And so here he lists perseverance to perseverance godliness. That is reverence. It's usually translated reverential fear of God. But that's an awkward concept. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think of this word more as a description of a mature spiritual life. So that's that's what godliness is. It's a mature spiritual life and to that you add uh, brotherly kindness, brotherly love, uh, every, that Christians are, demonstrate that they are disciples of Christ by loving one another and to brotherly kindness, love. So it uh, goes from Philadelphia or Philadelphos to Agape love. Now, we're in verse 8. starts with the word for, indicating it is an explanation of what has been said before. It's explaining the significance of this chain of Christ-like character, characteristics, character qualities. You have a for at, uh, at the beginning of verse 8, and you have a for at the beginning of verse 8. So that shows both of these verses are come out of that list of Christ-like uh, character qualities. Verse 8 describes the things that they have positively and the result of that. Verse 9 deals with the lack of those qualities and the negative consequences. But the issue is that both of these are addressed to believers. This is where you get into a problem with the lordship salvation people because they want to indicate that if you lack these things, then you're not really saved. And so we're, we have to go back and look at the context, which tells us that they were actually saved believers. They're treated as believers all the way through Second Peter and he even states that in the first in the second half of the first verse as we'll see in uh, in just a minute so this verse starts off with the explanation for and then there's inc- an encouragement really that is stated by this uh, participle if these things are yours there's no actual word for if but that's the sense of the participle it's considered a conditional participle and the the word hoop Arco" is a word that describes something that, you, that exists, something you possess, and so it should be translated along the lines of if you possess these things, uh, which is how I translated it the last time, but today in looking at it, I think a better translation, which I changed in a later slide, is if these qualities are present in you. Okay, if these qualities, if you see this character transformation in your life, if these things are yours, and secondly, if they, the English in the New King James translates it, if they abound, abounding indicates you've arrived at a position where, oh, now you have it in abundance. But that mishandles the sense of the participle. It really has the same the sense of you, these things are present in you and increasing. In other words, there's spiritual uh, growth that is going on. It's not just that you have it statically. The Christian life never, never becomes static. I've always used this illustration. That the spiritual life in the spiritual life, you're either going forward or you're going backwards. You never stand still, and a lot of times you go three steps forward and two steps back. We never stand still. It is like you have a car with no brakes. You either have drive in the transmission, you either drive or you're in neutral. You don't you don't have backup, and you have to drive that vehicle up a hill. That means you're either pressing on the gas and you're going forward, but if you take your foot off the gas, you go backward because you don't have a brake. You're just in neutral, and so you're going to roll backwards. And that's how the spiritual life is. If we're not intentionally going forward, walking by the Spirit, then what's the default position? You take your foot off the accelerator, and what happens? You default to the sin nature, and you regress. So we have to be careful never to become satisfied, never to think we've arrived, never to think that, oh, I've learned enough. That is so dangerous for so many Christians. We, we all get started this way, I think, that when you're saved, you are in a position mentally, spiritually, where you're probably looking for something, especially if, we, especially if you're a little older, that you're looking for meaning, purpose, significance in life, and you hear the gospel, and you trust in Christ as your as your, as your Savior. And then the issue is going forward. But you, if you're, especially if you're in your teens or 20s, you've got a lot of questions. Is Jesus really God? How do I understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? What's this Trinity thing all about? Uh, how do I know I got saved? You begin to ask all these questions, and you begin to get them answered. Some people have five questions. Some people have 500 questions. And once they get their questions answered, that's the first, I think, the first major test of their of their motivation and their movement forward. Because if you're, you start off and you want to get your questions answered, once you get them answered, you think you've arrived, unless you came up with some more questions. And I realized in this is based on my own experience and watching others that when a lot of people get their questions answered they start coasting and before long you don't see them at bible class all the time you don't see them at church all the time and they start be getting distracted by the cares of the world and and what happens is your motivation has to shift you for a long time you'll go to class cuz you want to learn not everything but everything you think you need When you get there, you tend to relax. And say, well, I've heard this. How many times have you come to class? Well, I've heard this. I've seen that diagram before. And you start thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. You start thinking about uh, next week. Uh, You open your Bible, read something else, whatever it is, but you, you quit concentrating and focusing. And the point is, once you get in a certain stage, somewhere in your spiritual adolescence, you have to make this switch from coming to class to learn something new to coming to class to be reminded of what you need to know to get through every day and face the challenges and problems that you have. And you may not be learning anything new, but you need to be reminded of all the stuff you've already learned because that's important to remind you that you need to walk with the Lord every day. He's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. Whatever the problems are you face, God's going to take care of you. And we forget usually faster than we learn when it comes to spiritual things. So we have to constantly be reminded to bring those principles back uh, into the front of our mind. So the idea here is if these things are, are yours, if these spiritual qualities, that's what the things refers to, if these spiritual qualities are, are present in you and increasing. That is the key to avoid being spiritually non-productive and un, unfruitful. And that's what we find in the next set of words. You will be, and that's this uh, verb over here, kathistemi, which means you, you will uh, cause this to happen. And it should be pre- as, uh, translated as a present. It's not translated that way, it's translated as a future. You are... If these things are yours and increasing, you are neither barren nor unfruitful. Why? Because these qualities are yours. So there's a growth process that's being described here. That as you grow and develop and, and walk by the Spirit, then these spiritual uh, characteristics, Christ-like characteristics, are developing in your life. And if they're being developed in your life, that's fruit. That's what we looked at. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's fruit. It's your, those spiritual qualities, not how many people you witness to, not how many people you uh, are saved because of your witness. It's not quantifiable. It is the the, the character quality. So you are... If these things are yours and present in you, you are neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is talking about this same issue that relates to having uh, application in your life. And that's the same thing that is brought up by James, in James two twenty. Now this we'll come back to James two a little later on, but this issue starting in about James two thirteen, the question is raised about the connection between faith and works. Now what happens is uh, the, the lordship theology comes along and says, "See if you have to have works to demonstrate your faith." And if you don't have faith to demonstrate your faith, it's a dead faith. And by dead faith, they mean a non-existent faith, a faith that never existed. But a dead faith is not a faith that never existed. It's a non-productive faith. For something to be dead, what do you know is an absolute truth? When you see something dead, what do you know about it? That it was alive at some point it had to first be alive before it's dead. And so for there to be a dead faith once there had to be a live faith. So this is a believer who once had an active faith trusting in the Lord and now it's no longer productive. He's, he's incarnality. He's hit the skids. He's He's out of it spiritually. So a dead faith is not one that never existed, but it's one that is no longer productive. And that's what... Uh, S- Second Peter is writing about. Peter is writing about having a faith that is productive. It's not useless. It's not um, uh, non-productive. It's it's not uh, used. Let's go back to our language here. It's not ineffective. I like that. Our, it's ineffective or useless. And this is what happens with a lot of believers, that it just becomes, their spiritual life becomes useless, or as James says, a dead, non-productive faith. So in Second Peter, we read, if these Christ-like characteristics, character qualities, are present in you and increasing, this is how I've revised the translation, then they will keep you, that is, that character will keep you from being spiritually useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's another important thing. We spent a lot of time on that word last time, so I want to just review a couple of things. The the character quality, to have the character qualities, what must precede that? You're walking by the Spirit. So it's not that the character qualities prevent you from being spiritually useless. It's the walk by the Spirit that produces the character qualities that is keeping you from being spiritually useless or unfruitful. And then you have the phrase, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase, in the knowledge, the preposition there is not the preposition in, E-N in the Greek, but Ace, it indicates in some cases a goal, but in this construction it's best to understand it as uh, advancing with respect to your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the use of the word epinosis here, and then when we get to the last verse, near the last verse of 2 Peter, Peter says, "...grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." So we grow with reference to that knowledge, and that's what he's saying here. You, grow, you won't be unfruitful with respect to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, you're walking by the Spirit, but that walk by the Spirit isn't just some mystical thing. It is a walk that is built on knowledge, on a growth in the knowledge. So this starts off with basic information, which, as I pointed out last time, is the word, uh, usually indicated by the word gnosis. And so you come to Bible class and you get a lot of information and a lot of knowledge, and this is a standard for a lot of Christians, but you really haven't figured out how to walk by the Spirit yet. But when you start figuring that out, when you hear this information, if you are walking by the Spirit, then God begins to transform that knowledge from just basic information and data points to where it begins to be more significant, more targeted, and it uh, is used in your spiritual, spiritual growth, and it matures you. So I talked last time about the fact that about 130, 140 years ago, you had basically two views on the word epinosis. You had uh, Bishop Lightfoot... Who points at, Who said that epinosis is an advance upon gnosis, denoting a larger or a more thorough knowledge? And then he goes on to say, hence also epinosis is used especially of the knowledge of God and of Christ as being the perfection of knowledge. So now, there were there was one uh, other uh, bishop, Armitage Robinson, and he he disagrees to some degree, but. What I have found in a lot of theology where you have this kind of a difference, this is where I was concluding the last time, is that in some passages, and in some ways both are true, this isn't a technical word that always means the same thing every time, and I think that's what one particular article I was reading was getting at. There are passages where Lightfoot's concept seems to be present, that there's an emphasis on an advanced knowledge, an advance in knowledge, to something that is spiritually a- applicable, and the emphasis in epinosis is a knowledge that is application it ju- isn't something though that happens mechanically and quickly and just instantly it's, it's the whole process that occurs in walking by the spirit uh, Robinson's idea was that the preposition is an intensive as Lightfoot had said but directive and so there's some sort of limitation that comes across that's going to be in the context. And so he goes on to say, so far, th- so, so far then as we're able to distinguish between gnosis and epinosis, we may say that gnosis is the wider word and expresses knowledge in the fullest sense. Epinosis is knowledge directed towards a particular object, perceiving, discerning, and recognizing. And that is is mostly related to how it's used in the prison epistles. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Uh, Dr. Honer in Ephesians 117, where it talks about epinosis in relation to the knowledge of God, it's to know God more intimately. But we know God more intimately, not by some mystical... Uh, spiritual thing. Contemplative spirituality, which is a horrible medieval abomination, has had a resurrection along with the New Age movement since the the 1980s. And you get churches that have these different, uh, th- you know, they, they get very dramatic. They have candles that are being lit. When you pray, they turn the lights down. They'll uh, create a a maze-like thing in the entryway, and you have to walk through the maze and pray different ways, and that makes you more spiritual, and it's just medieval mysticism. Uh, This is the result of your increased knowledge of Scripture, then its application, and God the Holy Spirit uses all of that to begin to change us, transform us, and conform us to the character of Christ. And so what we see is that gnosis is a very, very broad category. Epinosis is a more narrow category. But in some places, the two words are virtually synonymous. So you can't say, well, it's one and then the other. In some places, gnosis is used for epinosis, and epinosis is used for gnosis. So you have to look at the context. It's not mechanical or automatic. Colossians 1, 9, and 10 associates... This epinosis, knowledge with an understanding of God's will, and of course that's comes through knowing knowing the Word. And it's associated with wisdom and spiritual understanding. That comes with maturity. And then in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. So it's knowledge in relation to God the Father and His person and building that more intimate relationship, which is what Paul talks about in a parallel passage in Ephesians 1.17 knowledge of Him and then in Ephesians 4.13 the knowledge of the Son of God so it's targeted to these persons of the Trinity but it comes from the Word of God, the more we study the Word of God the more we learn about God's plan and God's purposes and the more the Holy Spirit uses that to transform that knowledge from basic information to usable, applicable uh, teaching and instruction. Philippians one nine, knowledge is associated with discernment. Philemon six with the knowledge of every good thing. So I concluded that epignosis is much more specific than gnosis in some of these passages. And then in the prison epistles, it's used to indicate a more intimate knowledge of God of of. Christ, which results in, um, which results in application, targeted application of what we've learned from the Word, and so all of that ties together. So in Second Peter one nine, we then read the other side. One eight is those who have these things and these qualities, and they're present. It is integral to their spiritual growth and prevents them from being. Unproductive in their spiritual life and ineffective in their spiritual life. And then in 2 Peter 1 9, we get a second explanation, the flip side, the negative, for he who lacks these things. And the Greek word there is paremi, which has the opposite idea. I translated the verse 8, he who has these qualities present. And here it can be translated. He who does not have these qualities present. He who lacks these qualities. And then it says three things. Now, the order in the New King James is short-sighted and blindness. Now, scholars get wrapped around the axle on these, on these metaphors. How can you be blind and short-sighted at the same time? You're overthinking Okay, so what the New King James translators tried to handle this by saying short-sighted even to blindness," but they switched the order of the words that's in the in the Greek. In the Greek, it just says, "He who lacks these things is blind and nearsighted," and then it says, "and has forgotten that he had that he was cleansed." From his old sins. So he's forgetful about the grace of God that is in his life. So let's look at each of these three. First of all, blind. This is a term that indicates that he can't see what's in front of him. He's walking, it's like walking in darkness. So the concept of blind here refers to a spiritual blindness, and it indicates that he is. Uh, He doesn't understand reality. He can't see things for what they are. There's an interpretation of what is in front of him that is uh, different from reality. He can't see life as it is, reality as it is. As God sees them, he is blinded to spiritual truth, so now he's calling bad good and good bad. He has completely reversed his understanding because of the sin in his own life. So that's the first quality. He's, he's divorced from this because he's forgotten that he's been forgiven of sin. He ignores the sin in his life. And so now he's back living like an unbeliever in spiritual blindness. The second word is short-sighted. It's based on the Greek word. That's where we get our word Myopic it is the greek word malpazzo and it means to be nearsighted you're only looking at things up close you're not looking at things in a distance it is a sign of immaturity to only think in terms of the immediate reality your immediate wants or desires your immediate pleasures and not think in terms of the consequences not take not think in terms of the Uh, long-term benefits or the long-term negative uh, negative uh, qualities. So a Christian can not only be blind, but they're myopic. They they just look at the immediate situation. My mother used to call it not being able to think beyond the end of your nose. Some of you may have heard that from your uh, mother as well. You just can't think in terms of what the consequences are. So you do what you want. You give into your desires and your passions and your uh, lust patterns right away because uh, you just want that immediate gratification. One of the things, ways in which maturity is described, uh, emotional maturity is described, is the ability to postpone gratification for a higher purpose or higher goal. So those who can't think in terms of a long term consequence just feel that pressure to satisfy that lust pattern now. And as a result, they're they're living not in light of eternity, but just living for the moment. So nearsighted is different from being spiritually blind. Spiritually blind divorces you from reality and seeing things as God sees them. Nearsighted means you just look at the immediate needs, the immediate desires, and not living in light of eternity. And then we get to our third category and that is forgetful that past sins were forgiven. Now this is interesting because what does what does this tell you? If they're forgetful that their past sins were forgiven, that tells you right away that they're saved. That there, there's no question of their salvation. So we get into verse 10 and it's translated as uh, be diligent to make uh, certain your call and your call and election then a lot of people translate that well i have to make sure i'm saved well contextually they're already sure they're saved peter is sure they're saved and so we can look at uh at some different things here we have to uh look back at verse 1 the second part of verse 1 to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of god of our God and Savior jesus christ what this um what this tells us is that they start with the that, that uh, Peter starts this by making it clear that they have the same justification faith as he, the the apostles. That they are that they are saved. Uh, a second thing that uh, that we can observe here is in verse three. Verse three reads, "As his divine power has given to some of you." So what he said? No, has given to us. So he assumes they're all believers that he includes himself with them, and we've all been given uh, this. Uh, God's divine power has given us the things that pertain to life and godliness. And then in the next verse, in verse 4, he says, "...by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises." So there the us also refers to both his readers and himself. And so that again emphasizes the fact that they have uh, have been saved. And then when you get to verse 5, he says, "...but also for this very reason..." Uh, giving all diligence add to your faith virtue, so there again he is stating that they have faith, so it's very clear contextually that when it comes down to uh, making being diligent to make your call and election sure, the question we 're going to have to ask is sure for whom? What a lot of people read is is making it sure for yourself, and that is not at all. Uh, what it is saying so in verse 10 we read therefore brethren be even more diligent to make your call and election sure for if you do these things you will never stumble so let's look at a couple of words here the first word is the word for diligent this is the greek verb spudazo And um, every time I I think of this word, I'll think of a little... I think of an event in my past, and so I'll just share it with you. Maybe one day he'll hear this message. Um, Randy Price, you know, Dr. Randall Price. We were just together at Pre-Trib. We're both on the board for Pre-Trib. We've been friends since the summer of 1970. We were working at Camp Penile. Now, the motif the theme around boys' camp is an Indian tribe, the Tejas Indians, Tejas meant friendly, and so that was the thing that was developed years and years, decades ago. And so every boy counselor is a chief. Instead of Mr. or Sir, whatever, every boy counselor is a chief. And at the end of your first summer, they give you a name. Now, some guys are hard to find names for. I had a guy I grew up with named uh, Gary, Gary was just one of the most cheerful guys you ever saw, and um, yeah, you know Gary. And um, so they couldn't. His name was Happy Beaver. Okay. Then there there were others, and it was difficult for them to come up with a name for Randy. And so they called. But Randy liked to study, so they called him Spudazzo Owl using this verb, spudazzo, to be diligent. And he certainly is. When he wrote his the, the lengthy 800-plus page book on the uh, coming last day's temple, I think Dr. Walvard, the president of Dallas Seminary, wrote the for, forward and said, no one ever has or probably ever will again write as thorough an account of the temple as it, Randy has in this book. So that's the way he was. That's what spudazzo means to be diligent and to labor over something. It's the word that is that is uh, translated in um, uh, 2 Timothy uh, uh, 2.15, to study, the old King James said, study to show yourself approved under God, but it's the word to be diligent. It studies the idea there because at the end of the concept, context, it says rightly dividing the word of truth. So you have to be diligent in your study of the word to rightly divide it. So study is not a bad tr- a bad interpretation, but it is not the uh, dictionary uh, meaning of the term. So he says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. And there's another word in the Greek there that just intensifies that word for diligence. So not only do you focus on your spiritual growth, But then continue. These qualities have to be have to be present in you and increasing, and don't give up. Continue to be diligent, even more diligent, uh, to make your call and your election sure. So we have to look at a couple of these words: call and election. Well, we've studied call before. We'll look at it again in Matthew twenty-four has the idea of the invitation to accept Christ as Savior, the invitation to respond to the gospel. And then the word election is this word ekloge, which has the idea of appointment or commissioning to a special task based on qualifications. Now, I'm going to come back and point out what some of this is. If you studied in Ephesians 1, 3, 4 as we've gone through that on Sunday morning you, you've uh, we've studied all this in detail it's usually translated election or selection and in Calvinism it's the U in the tulip the U in the tulip is unconditional election that God doesn't pay attention to his foreknowledge or anything else he has no qualifications or anything for his Selection of someone to be saved. And what we'll see is that isn't quite true. The word is always used of selecting somebody who's qualified. Now, the issue is what qualifies you? Are you qualified by your works? Are you qualified because you possess the righteousness of Christ? And that's what we'll see. You're qualified by the possession of Christ's righteousness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We have to understand that it's always a selection based on some qualification. Now, the other word that's used here is that word that's translated sure, which is the word babayas, and it has the idea more of confirming or certifying or attesting to something. So the the issue here is be diligent to demonstrate or to certify your call and... and um, at at your your call and how am I translating Uh, in selection or uh, commissioning to certify your call and commissioning as a believer now this word eklogay the Hebrew word is bakar which takes us back to how it's used in the Old Testament and this is a great example for it this is the NET translation And the NET translation, which was done by most... I'd say most of the guys, men who translated the Old Testament were at Dallas Seminary. A lot of places I disagree with their theology and different things. I don't recommend it for people because it's... They just have a lot of notes, interpretive notes that aren't correct. But on their translation note, they often give you insight, sometimes insight where there's an issue, but you don't like their solution. Anyway, in... This is how they translated Judges 20.16. Among this army, that is the army of the Benjamites, were 700 specially trained left-handed soldiers. I don't know why you get specially trained, but it does indicate that there's a qualification there, that they they just didn't randomly go along and select 700 who were going to be uh, slingers in the army, they were specially trained. They have a translation note that it could be translated literally 700 choice men. These men demonstrated an, an exquisite qualification and that if you look at uh, the translation in in verse uh, down below from the New American Standard, Out of all these people, 700 choice men. New King James translates it, select men. But they're not randomly chosen. They're all left-handed, and each one could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Now, that's a pretty serious qualification. They're not selected randomly. They're selected because they were marksmen. They were expert marksmen. With a sling, if you 've ever tried to use it and those of you' who've been to Israel been to the Israel Museum, and they have what sling the slinger stones that they found at various sites, like outside of Lachish, which was down about twenty miles from Jerusalem, Sennacherib surrounded the city, it was under siege for a while, and in their the reliefs that they uh, created back in in Nineveh. At his palace, you see the uh, portrayal of the slingers. Well, these stones that were there were not, you know, small stones the size of a marble. They were a little bit smaller than a cue ball in, in pool. Okay, they were about this big around. They were larger than a golf ball, but smaller than a cue ball. And they're heavy. And so they could sling this a hundred to 200 yards up to 60 miles an hour and and hit uh, the uh, something the size of a hare. They were right on target, so these are extremely qualified men. Now, I want you to hold your place here, and we're going to turn to Matthew 24, where we get a better understanding of this concept. Matthew chapter 24, this is a parable. And as I was doing some study reading, I ran across uh, an article on Second Peter, which in many ways was good, but it was written by Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges was the founder of the Grace Evangelical Society and one of the uh, sort of fathers of the Free Grace Movement and GES. And every now and then I want to point out that, because yeah, I know some of you get the GES newsletter, they have some squirrely interpretations and one of the big problems is that, and Tommy's pointed this out to him, and I've pointed this out to him, and that none of the parables in Matthew relate to the church; they all relate to God's plan for Israel. And yet, they consistently take these parables out of context and apply them to the church, which leads to some horrible interpretation. But in Matthew chapter uh, twenty, do I say twenty twenty-four? In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, sorry, Matthew 22, and we have the description of the wedding feast starting in verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them, so he's being queried and questioned by the uh, religious leaders. And he's going to give an illustration. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven always talks about the Messianic kingdom. So therefore, you know, this is talking about God's future plan for Israel in the kingdom in the millennium has zero to do with the church. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call. There's the word call, the same word we have in Second Peter. To call, it means to invite people to the wedding. And the picture here is he's sending them to Israel to invite them. This is John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the message of the disciples, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they ignored him, they refused to come. Verse 4, again he sent out other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatty cattle are killed, and everything's ready, come to the wedding, but they made light of it. That means they ridiculed the messengers and they rejected them and they went their way. Some went home, some went to their business, and the rest then seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. That's what happens to John the Baptist. That's what happens to Jesus Christ. But when the king heard about it, verse 7, He was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. That's the picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited, that is Israel at the first advent, those who were invited were not worthy. Why? Not because they weren't called, not because they weren't elected, but because they chose not to come. The issue is on their volition. They rejected the invitation. So he, he says they were not worthy, not for an internal reason, but because they rejected the invitation. Therefore, he says, verse 9, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. That's where the Gentiles live, is on the highways and byways. And invite them So verse 10, those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, we're not told yet in the development of this that the the guests all had on special clothes, okay? They come, both bad and good, and the wedding hall is filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man, singular, There who did not have on a wedding garment. That implies everybody else had on a wedding garment. So what's important is they have to be properly dressed. He's not. So the king says to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man is speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. Now these GES guys come along and say outer darkness is some punishment in the millennium for, for uh, church-age believers who lose reward at the judgment seat of Christ. This isn't talking about the, the Bema seat here. This is talking about uh, the invitation to the kingdom and those who aren't qualified are going to be sent to outer darkness and they aren't qualified because they don't have the righteousness of Christ and then it comes to the conclusion says for many are called and then it's translated but few are chosen but the word isn't shouldn't be translated as chosen it should be translated as choice choice indicates their internal qualification. The only the only people who make a choice in the whole parable are those who choose not to respond to the invitation. They reject the invitation and they ridicule the invitation and they go home and they go to their businesses and they don't want to go. That's the only choice that's made. So it's not contextually accurate to say few are chosen because those who came were not chosen by the king. They chose to respond to the invitation. So it should be translated, for many are called, but few are choice. What makes them choice? They're qualified because they have on the right garments and the right garments represent the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, let's look at one other aspect as we go let's you go to James 2 and I'm going to go back to 2 Peter for just a second. In 2 Peter, I'm going to go find the slide. There we go. 2 Peter 1:10, therefore brethren be even more diligent to make your call and and are to attest to your call and selection, that that selection is based on a qualification from what we've just seen. And then states, for if you do these things, that is continue to uh, have these qualities present in you and continuing to grow in those qualities, increasing in those qualities, then you will... Uh, never stumble. So the idea here is going to be to the certifying your call and election is talking about showing the qualifications, the uh, Christlike characteristics uh, that you have. And so we see a similar passage in, uh, in, uh, in James James chapter 2. Okay, in James chapter 2, let's just look at James 2 briefly to get sort of a, a an orientation here to what is going on contextually. The basic principle is set forth in verses 14 through 17. The question is asked, what does it profit my brethren? Now notice that. My brethren, all through James, refers to the readers as believers. They're my brethren or my beloved brethren. Peter refers in the verse that we're studying to his readers as my brethren. So what is it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, that is that he understands the word and he understands what's taught in the word, but he doesn't have works. Works means application. He's learned a lot. He's got doctrinal notebooks lined up all on all his shelves, but he doesn't live a life showing any application of what he's done. So the principle is laid out that that doctrine, that is what's taught in the scripture, without application, you can know a lot, but without application, it's just useless. It doesn't deliver you. Can faith save him? Isn't justification by faith alone? It's It's not doing you any good. It's not delivering you in the problems and difficulties of life. And that's 14 through 17, gives a couple of examples. Ending in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not non-existent, but no longer functioning. It's no longer being applied, and it's not doing the, the believer any good because he's not trusting in God. Then we get to the next section, verses 18 through 19. This represents an objector, and I'm not going to get into the details of that because it's not necessary to where I'm going, but he makes an objection to what James is teaching. And then James gives some illustrations in 2, uh, 20 to twenty-six one illustration has to do with Abraham and the other has to do with Rahab and both of them applied doctrine they applied their faith to their circumstances they're already saved but now they're applying faith to their circumstances and that get is being used by James to give evidence he is uh, uh, certifying it certifies their their salvation so James two seventeen, as I just pointed out, even so faith if it has no works is useless. It uh, doesn't produce fruit, it is barren because it's alone. Now verse twenty. James is responding to the objector. He says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's great that you're a believer. It's great you've learned doctrine, but if you're not applying it, it's not making any difference in your life, and so it's just, it's not bearing fruit. It's useless. And then he gives this illustration from Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? What chapter in Genesis would you go to to find the story of Abraham and Isaac? Genesis 22, okay? Genesis 22 tells that episode. And that's the example that James is using, that something is happening there that's related to justification. And so he draws this point, verse 22. Do you see that that faith was working together with his works, his application, and by works, faith was made perfect. It was matured. It didn't begin. Now, Romans 4.1 refers to the time when Abraham is justified by faith, when he became a believer. And R- Paul uses this illustration, Romans 4.1, and says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if, and that's a first-class condition, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. So wait a minute, Paul is saying that, that Abraham was not justified by works, and James is saying he was justified by works. What they're talking about is two different justifications. The justification illustration James is talking about is at the end of Abraham's life, or near the end of Abraham's life, in Genesis 22. But, James, but, but Abraham is initially justified by faith. This is when he is saved in Genesis 15, 6. And he believed. And technically, in the Hebrew, it's not talking about what happened in Genesis fifteen, one through five. It's talk, it's reminding us that James had, I mean, that Abraham had already believed in the Lord, and it was imputed or accounted to him for righteousness. This is when Abraham is say phase one justified by faith alone. That happens in Genesis fifteen when probably in an event that occurred before Genesis 12, probably when Abraham is 40 or 50 years of age. Genesis 22 is much later, when Abraham is probably 120 years old. Okay? So they're two different events. So James isn't talking about how he got justified by faith to go to heaven. James is talking about how he certified that or demonstrated it before man in the situation with Isaac when God told him to go sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah and Abraham, according to Hebrews, knew that God could raise him from the dead. He had finally passed the test to understand that Isaac was the promised seed and that God would either A, not let him actually sacrifice Isaac, or if he did God would raise him for the dead. He passes the test. God stayed his hand and uh, he demonstrated or certified his, his salvation that he had grown, that he had matured in all these characteristics, and he certifies or lives out the character that had developed in him over the years and through the many, many trials and tests. So what we see is justification by faith alone for imputed righteousness in Genesis fifteen six, And then that imputed righteousness and the character that's developed is demonstrated before others in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. So the application for us in 1 Peter is that we confirm or certify our spiritual maturity and imputed righteousness through the manifestation of Christ's character in our lives. As we are walking by the Spirit and we are increasing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, and that includes everything that's in the Scripture because that's the mind of Christ, then as the Holy Spirit matures us, then it presents visible evidence to others, not to ourselves. It certifies to others that we are believers because as Jesus said in John 13, and 35, that by this, that you love one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. It's a certification to others of what we say when we say that we are a Christian, we believe in Christ, and that we're walking with the Lord. So it's not talking about how to uh, confirm to ourselves that we're saved, but how to give that visible uh, authentication to others that we are believers and Christ's character is being demonstrated in our lives. Next time we'll come to verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is talking about rewards, the rewards that come to the faithful believer who has grown and matured, and so he is going to enter the kingdom abundantly, and he's going to have rich rewards and position and privilege in the coming kingdom. So we'll get into that Next time, and then into the next section of 2 Peter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to understand what you're teaching, the importance of our spiritual growth, our maturity, the transformation of our character to emulate Christ, that we may uh, attest by our lives all that you have done for us and the unique, our unique relationship with you that is a visible testimony to the angels and to others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.